Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Okay, so it looks like Greece is not going back to the drachma, but world markets are certainly uncertain today as Greece has just given power to that new democracy party, the party that supports a European Union bailout of Greece's disastrous economy. The new government is scrambling to get into place, and as soon as that happens, discussions about the bailout begin again, with Germany leading the way as that country also has to consider the larger European economy, including Spain and Italy, which have their own problems. It's politics, as usual today, as we also look at some of the vice presidential hopefuls Mitt Romney has been trotting out in recent weeks, looking for the one that might click with voters. I'm joined here in the studio by uh, Harvard economist Richard Parker, who has also been uh, advising Greece on what to do over there, and uh, David Kravitz from Blue Mask Group, and Rob Eno from Red Mask Group. Welcome to all of you. All right, Richard, starting here, we I had the economist uh, Bob Posen on, I think it was last week, and he said he was certain that uh, Greece was going to be kicked out of the EU and they were going to be back to the drachma and they, that the, Germany and everybody else was going to bail out Spain and Italy, but we wouldn't really care about Greece anyway. It wasn't going to make that big a difference. So it looks like that's not going to happen. You know, I've uh, I've grown accustomed after a couple of years of traveling in the southern Mediterranean and also listening to economists talk about Europe to this uh, almost uh, afternoon TV soap opera-like dr- dramatics. And what's unfolding here is Greece 3.0. They're going to form a coalition government. It's going to consist of New Democracy and PASOK, the two main parties. There will be possibly a third party in it. Together they will have a very strong majority in parliament and they will then go ahead to pass legislation which will meet criteria set by the Europeans. At the same time, the Europeans, the Germans included, are going to loosen up some of those criteria not only because they want Greece to stay in the euro, but because the politics of Europe is changing. Hollande has just been elected in France, and yesterday the socialists won an outright majority uh, in the French parliament. And you can see that the climate for getting away from austerity and back toward growth is on a perpetual rise. So we're in a period where I think that, uh, that television may love the drama, but what's going to be interesting is to watch what's unfolding beneath the drama. And who's who's going to be the prime minister? Is it this guy Antonin Samaras? Samaras. Uh, you know, that's to be negotiated between Venezuelos and Samaras. I think the more interesting question is what the power-sharing arrangement will be between the two major leaders, even if one becomes the, the prime minister. Uh, I assume one of them will. I don't see what has changed. <clears throat> I mean, they have this new democracy party in place, but how does this change even what – what what the government was, what the coalition was under Papandreas. I mean, it was they, they were looking for the same thing. Well, how right. is it different? Uh, you know, in many ways, it's not different, and that's a very good point, Emily. Because you know, the 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 issues that were there in the beginning of two thousand and ten, when I first uh, went to Athens to begin consulting, and the issues in mid two thousand and twelve are broadly the same. What's happened is that the Greek economy, because of these austerity measures, has been contracting throughout. And what they need to do is stop the contracting. That's the most important thing in front of them right now because there is a capacity for violence that's going to grow. You saw this so-called Golden Dawn Party, which was uh, non-existent a year ago, has now got 6% of the vote and maybe 20 votes in parliament. And it is an extremist party uh, and a very dangerous one and racist and, and very unattractive. And that kind of mood is there and will rise, and Greece is by no means the only state. And I think that the Europeans are very anxious not to have that politics rise as a player in Europe, uh, as well as wanting to work on recovery. Jump in anytime, you guys. But what about the um, the the Greek citizens as well? I mean, are they going to have a new attitude about this? I mean, are, are they going to embrace the austerity measures in a different way? Because there was a lot of rejection of that, as you know. And, you know, how's it going to get people back? There's no work? average Greek citizen. What I can tell you is that, you know, if you sum up the votes gotten uh, won by the parties of the left and parties of the right, the left won. Mm. I mean, 55% of the Greek voters cast a vote for one of the left parties, but you're going to have a government headed by a center-right party. And that's a phenomenon of this Greek parliamentary system that gives the first party uh, uh, of all of them a 50-vote uh, a bonus, 50-seat bonus. Uh, uh, so uh, so as to prevent deadlock government. 
but it means that the tensions in Greece aren't necessarily going to go down. One of the things we have to watch is Syriza and Tsipras, who came in just behind um, uh, New Democracy and Samaras. How he takes this loss is going to be very important. Will he reach out to the communists? Will he reach out for street demonstrations? He can make life very difficult for this, uh, uh, for this coalition government. Do you, the uh, there was this video that sort of went wildly viral of of uh, one of the uh, extremist Greek politicians. It was reported as a slap, but it wasn't a slap. It oh, was yeah, really right. beating uh, someone else on a TV program. Is that the Golden Dawn? That's Golden party Dawn. That you're t- yeah. Do you think that they are as of as of the uh, as a result of the election results? Are they out of the picture at this point? I mean, are they, ex- can, or can we expect them to continue? No, no, to play no. I mean, they weren't role. a party in the last parliament. They now have twenty seats. Right. The one that's out of the picture is Laos, which is the traditional right wing party, but which was never a, an extremist right wing party of the kind that Golden Dawn is. This mm-hmm. on the right now, you're seeing extremism being ramped up and winning parliamentary pre- uh, parliamentary presence. This this new democracy party is this is a center right party mm-hmm. that you're saying. Mm-hmm. What do you think, uh, Germany? I think it was John Stewart last week that I heard that the one, the, the one time Germany didn't want to try and take over Europe, they ended up, they ended up with it. What, what do you think? Um, we're, we're, is Germany basically driving all of this, or how does? Well, Germany's been a big beneficiary of the euro and uh, European market integration because it just makes it very much easier for German manufacturers who sell high quality uh, 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 goods into the rest of the market. To, to sell them across borders. So they have no interest in having the Eurozone dissolve. Uh, that's an economic reason. The second is that the French, for historical reasons, have no desire to see Germany out on its own trying to lead or go its own way in the context of Europe. And most of the smart thinking in Europe recognizes that over the next 50 years, with the threat of the Soviet uh, empire gone, that you're going to see an emergence of a Washington-Beijing condominium for sort of divvying up control of the world. And the Europeans are going to be cut out of negotiations if they try to go into negotiations on a one-country-by-one-country basis. As the EU, they're an economy that's larger than the United States right now. The EU in, in toto is the world's largest economy. And if they can stay together and find a way to act together and have a common policy voice across a range of issues, they will be significant players in the 21st century. If they try to act as Germany, as France, as Greece, as Belgium, Mm -hmm. forget it. So how come, if the pro-Bela parties appear to have won, why is the market down? Isn't this what, if if the opposite had happened, you'd think the markets would be crashing. Not that they're crashing today, but they're -hmm. they're down, they're off. Yeah, but, but see, again, I mean, you know, I've been watching the markets carefully to see what market intelligence was over the last two weeks. In anticipation of this uh, election, you would have thought that uh, markets would go down steadily in front of it uh, out of anxiety. There was also an election yesterday in France, which the socialists won outright control of the French parliament. So again, you would have expected markets, if they thought that problems were going to arise, to tank. And what's happening is that the markets are not celebrating Greece because correctly they realize that we had to get past Greece to look at the larger problems, which are Spain and Italy. Mm-hmm. And Spain and Italy need uh, help as well, too. But, uh, you know, they ha- Spain particularly has a, a different problem. It's not a government deficit. It's Spain and Ireland share in common the fact that they don't have a government deficit problem, but they both had huge real estate bubbles that broke. And the the breaking of the bubble has essentially bankrupted their banking system, and that's what has to be fixed. That's a pan-European problem because of the biggest foreign investors in Spain in that real estate boom were the Germans. And so German banks, German investors are deeply tied up in Spain and also, of course, in Italy in a way that they haven't been in Greece. Greece has been a sideshow and fairly small. Why is the bailout going to work? I mean, it isn't like uh, Detroit where you're putting money into a business and they need a jump start and they turn around and then suddenly start, people start buying cars again. And what, what, why will this change anything? I think a couple things are going on, and I don't want to go into economist speak, and I also have a point of view that doesn't agree with some of the conventional uh, views uh, popular. Here's what happened. In, in, we had a major financial meltdown in the United States. That washed across Europe. And Greece was swept in under the undertow of that crisis. 
Greece, if you look at its debt-to-GDP ratio and its growth ratio, was a country that was actually one of the most was one of the fastest growing in Europe, and its debt was not actually growing significantly at all. It was actually stable over 10 years. It got it got undercut by the financial crisis that swept out of Wall Street because banks were afraid to lend to one another. Banks were afraid to lend to customers. The portfolios of the banks began to depreciate uh, to the point of your bankruptcy in the case of some of the, the loans. Some of those were commercial loans and some of those were bonds that the, that the banks were holding as, as uh, equivalents of cash. What you have now, uh, two, three years on, is a problem in which the banks are not yet healthy. They're actually still not healthy banks. They're not healthy in the United States either, but they're not healthy at all in Europe. And the problem is that so many of these banks were doing cross-border lending into markets they didn't fully understand because they were seduced by the standardization of the credit rating agencies' evaluations, uh, you know, Standard & Poor's, Fitch, et cetera, that they bought carelessly. And now they're sitting on billions of dollars of Spanish coastal real estate, the value of which is substantially less mm. than what people paid for it. Those the, That paper is sitting on the bank's books. So as the banks get aid from the ECB, as the banks get aid from their own government through recapitalization, they're still nervous about lending into the economy now. Because, first of all, they haven't really written off an, all yeah, of their bad loans. Right. But it means that the standard Keynesian model that people like Paul Krugman keep pointing us to don't work the way they did in the 1930s. We're pouring trillions of dollars into the global banking system, but because the global banking system is not separate from the global investment system in the way that it was, the banks are afraid to lend all this money that they're getting from the Fed and from the ECB. I mean, the irony is banks, uh, the ECB took on a finally its new role as a lender of last resort just in the last few months. And so it started lending trillions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars to banks in Europe. But what did the banks in Europe do with that money? They turned around and they bought ECB bonds and were deposited with the ECB, which does nothing to restart the, <laughs> their, the, their country's economy. What, where when the ECB gives them money, they're supposed to turn around and lend that it to lend you it. and they me to right. right to start businesses back up, to start hiring back up, to so, to so get the economies moving. So we're at a stuck place, but it isn't a function of the government's being screwed up. It's of a banking bank. system that right. still has not been cleaned up. So it's almost a psychological problem. It sounds like what you're saying from from the point of view of the banks and the folks at those banks who are who are making decisions about what to do with their money once they have it. It is a psychological problem. But you remember the old joke about when you owe the bank a thousand dollars, it's your problem. When you owe the bank a, a million dollars, it's their problem. <laughs> the Greek the Greek prime minister said to me after the first big hundred and thirty billion uh, uh, dollar uh, bailout uh, two years ago. He said, you know, Richard, there's a third part to that old joke, which is when you owe the bank a hundred billion dollars, it's everybody's yeah. problem. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Richard Barker from Harvard University. I'm also joined in the studio by David Kravitz from Blue Mask Group and Rob Eno from Red Mask Group. We're going to have much more of the coverage on how the vote in Greece is reverberating both politically and economically this afternoon on The World at 3 o'clock and again tonight at 6 o'clock right here on 89.7. Up next, don't go away. We bring the political and economic discussion closer to home. Obama makes a big immigration announcement. Romney, Mitt Romney on Face the Nation and more. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Mass Eye and Ear, where specialists conduct research to develop new treatments for eye, ear, nose, throat, head, and neck problems. Mass Eye and Ear, in Boston and with locations north, south, and west of Boston. MassEyeandEar.org. And Elsa Dorfman, Cambridge portrait photographer, still clicking with the jumbo format Polaroid 20x24 analog camera and original Polaroid film. Online at ElsaDorfman.com. That's ElsaDorfman.com.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Elections this weekend raise more questions than answers in Egypt. I don't think that Egypt is out of the woods yet and that quiet will now reign. And in Greece. The problem in Greece is that people are not accustomed to listen, to hear the truth. We bring you the latest from Athens and from Cairo on the next edition of The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. If you have a vehicle that no longer works for you, put it to work for WGBH and turn that car, truck, trailer, boat, or motorcycle you don't really need into something you really want. It's Morning Edition. Donate your unwanted vehicle to WGBH. We'll take care of the paperwork, schedule the pickup, and you'll earn a tax deduction, all while supporting the programs you depend on. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. Call 855-426-2406. On the next Callie Crossley show, too many lawyers, not enough jobs. We'll talk about how the Massachusetts Bar Association wants to change that. Today at 1 on WGBH. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. We're covering politics, as we usually do, this Monday afternoon. Joining me here in the studio are Richard Parker from the Kennedy School of Government, David Kravitz from Blue Mask Group and Rob Eno from Red Mask Group. We were just talking about this weekend's big vote in Greece and what that means for our economy. And speaking of our economy, that is still the key issue in the presidential campaign. Mitt Romney has been trying to stay on point with that. But over the weekend, uh, he was on Face the Nation with Bob Schieffer. And uh, uh, Bob Schieffer was asking Mitt Romney if President Obama's announcement that the 800,000 illegal immigrants who came to America as children would be granted amnesty. He was was basically asking him if he thought that was politically motivated or whether it was genuine. Here's how Romney answered. If he really wanted to make a solution that dealt with these kids or with illegal immigration in America, uh, then this is something he would have taken up in his first three and a half years, not in his uh, last few months. So he did it for politics. Well, that's certainly a big uh, part of the equation. I'd say I agree with uh, Mitt Romney on this. I mean, my take on this is, first of all, you know, to, to, for Romney to pretend that there has been no discussion about this on a, bit, on a large scale is, 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 is totally absurd. I mean, the DREAM Act has been kicking around Congress for a long time. Obama was squarely behind it. It's come up for votes in Congress a number of times, and, and it gets blocked by Republicans every single time. Now, do I think that the timing of what Obama <laughs> did is politically motivated? Yeah. I, I, frankly, I do. So it does not mean it was not the right thing to do. I think it was the right thing to do. And I think it's both – it's the rare event that is actually both good policy in terms of, you know, advancing this goal, to, which is, you know, we don't punish children for right. the sins of and their Mitt parents. And Romney would not answer the question and as to whether would he not, would repeal exactly it right. were Exactly. He, he dodged it about five times and Bob Schieffer just tried to nail him on it. And, and he couldn't do it. Romney will not say whether he basically agrees with Obama's right. policy or not. But the, I mean, the, you, you said that Republicans have, have blocked it a bunch of times, but in 2009 and 2010, they had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and it didn't get done in those two years because Barack Obama spent all of his political capital and all of his time getting the health care plan passed. He, he, if he wanted to do this in 2009 and 2010, he could have done this in 2009 and 2010 when he had... I, I have a real problem, um, and, and, and to be frank, George Bush did some of this with the war on terror. I, I, I'm getting more and more concerned that the presidency of the United States and the presidents of the United States are circumventing Congress when they should be going to Congress. You know, the, the dictatorships, yeah, do it. D- dictatorships mm-hmm. sometimes happen, you know, on the, paved on the road of good intentions. And, you know, we really need to step back and we have a constitutional process. And if he wants to do this, he needs to go to the Congress. Whether or not it's good policy— whether or not you agree one way or the other, I, I have my biggest problem with this is the way that it happened, that it just came down by presidential fiat. And it, I think it's time in a lot of ways that we need to start going back to Congress. Well, let's be Making clear sure about what he's doing, though. Let's be clear about what he's doing. He is not changing the laws. The president cannot change the laws by himself. But the, you know, the decision of who to go after for deportation and who not to, that is and always has been an executive branch function. And so in the exercise of discretion, he can say, uh, you know, people who fall into the categories that are basically outlined by the DREAM Act, which is brought here as children, served in the military or in school and so on, 
uh, will not be uh, will be. And I think I think it's that they can apply technically for deferred action, which means they won't be deported for That's two right. years. It's basically That's what it is. It's putting their status on hold while, you know, hopefully but, but something discretion happens But discretion is a one-by-one one basis, not an entire class. And that that's where I think you get into the... Discretion you is get discretion. It's, it's, Prosecutorial it's, Prosecutorial discretion is usually on a case-by-case case basis, and I think that that's probably what's going to get litigated by a court. But, I mean, I isn't there a bigger issue here? Here, Richard, I'll bring you into this. A month ago, President Obama fully endorses same-sex marriage. Yep. Point-blank says, yep. you know, he thinks that uh, people of same-sex should have the same rights mm-hmm. as any heterosexual people, meaning in marriage and so on down. And now here he is, you know, really appealing to another big block of people, which is immigrants, maybe in particular Hispanics, because we've heard so much in recent uh, months about appealing to the Hispanic vote. And a lot of this group, I I would guess falls into that category, um, people who came to this country as children mm-hmm. um, from bordering communities and that kind of thing. So isn't it like just let me grab these uh, voting blocks while while the getting is good? You know, on Saturday I was with Mark Shriver at the Kennedy Library talking about his father, Sergeant Shriver, and one of the things we discussed was how Shriver persuaded Jack Kennedy as a candidate to call Coretta Scott King. Remember that? Yes. And and it was an extraordinary moment, but it was a judiciously balanced one because Kennedy was at the same time afraid of losing the white South because there were almost no black voters allowed to, there were no blacks allowed to vote in the South. And so was it a political act? Absolutely it was a political <laughs> act, but it was the right thing to do. So, you know, I, I think that presidents act under the const- what we think of as somehow the, the dirty constraints of politics, but end up doing the right thing. I'll take the right thing. Rob, a little more cynical <clears throat> than that. Yeah, you know, I just, it, it's like, like, like we said, you know, I just think that, that we should go back to Congress and we do, should do the things that we do with Congress. But to get back, I mean, I think that the Obama administration, one of the things they were trying to do was um, was stop Marco Rubio, who has his yeah. own version of this, um, who may be the VP nominee, who I'd like to see be the VP nominee. But the other the other thing is, as but the polling's stopping? going around, but, is, but as the polling's right. going on and on and on, you're seeing more and more that Barack Obama's having trouble in a lot of these swing states, and he's having trouble with historically... Democratic constituencies. As it's going along, the crosstabs are showing that, you know, African Americans in the South are supporting Mitt Romney in some states by twenty five percent. I don't think you've seen that in 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 generations since you know, since most African Americans used to be Republican before because the realignment, right? And it's because of the economy. So mm-hmm. he's trying to find ways to get to. And you know, you let if people young Americans have a fifty percent or just about unemployment rate, and he's allowing eight hundred thousand young people to stay and compete for those jobs that aren't here. So there's some of that. It's almost a counterintuitive, whether you, you know, it's almost a counterintuitive thing as well. You brought so. up the um, the vice presidential uh, contenders. And as I'm sure everybody saw in today's New York Times, I mean, I, I knew Mitt Romney had been appearing with occasional, but I guess he really has uh, plans to trot out virtually everybody who is within kind of a range, not necessarily even a short list, but... Uh, Former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty mm. has made appearances. Current um, Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, who I guess a lot of people like, you know, Paul Ryan from uh, Wisconsin. Then they got a couple of governors, Chris Christie from New Jersey, Bobby Jindal from Louisiana. And then those uh, senators, John Thune from South Dakota, Marco Rubio, as you mentioned, from Florida. And Kelly Ayotte. Yeah, Kelly Ayotte. Uh, I think that's a long shot, don't you think? It's, it's a long shot, but she yeah. was, you know, she was there, and I think that they, you know, the, the top she, but was... But she, she did was, make the appearance with him when he, when he was here was a few months ago. Yeah. Well, and she's the only one who says she actually wants it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's interesting that Chris, Chris Christie has walked back a lot. So has Marco Rubio, not as much as Chris Christie has, but Chris Christie's walked back a lot from yeah. his, I'm not going to do it. But he, he I mean... It's not going to be Christie. It, it, yeah, yeah, there's some very unflattering that this... Un- almost unreadable, uh, you know, tomb in the New York Times yesterday and today about the halfway houses in New Jersey uh-huh. and his connections to them. I mean, I was like mm-hmm. getting dizzy reading mm-hmm. them, but mm-hmm. it's under his watch that these uh, horrible circumstances are taking place. And I liked one of the comments from from one of the Romney people who said he's always late. <laughs> 
And late isn't good. He showed up at some event so late that Mitt Romney ended up introducing him instead of the other way around. It's like, yeah, he would be off my shortlist too. I don't like late. I just want to go back to one thing that Rob said, which is that this that uh, in 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 Rob's view, what Obama did with immigration was to try to stop the Marco Rubio plan. I don't understand how it stops Rubio from doing anything. If Rubio has a plan, let's see it. I mean, he says he's working on it. Let's see the plan. I think what Obama is doing, and and you know, and yes, it's political, but politics is how things get done uh, in government. Um, w- one of the things that this does, in addition to keeping people who you know shouldn't be thrown out of the country in the country, is it puts an enormous amount of pressure on Congress to do something. And so I think that's great. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's see Rubio's plan. If it's if it's a good plan, I have no doubt that it will pass Congress and the president will sign it. No, I, I, I hear you saying that, but I think that it, one of the political one of the political ramifications was to try and see what probably what to see what Rubio's plan is. You know, show, show your hand. I mean, you know, it's all big. It's a, it's a big poker game. Is there right? another block of Calling people out there that Obama needs to make some general appeal to? I mean, because what Rob is saying is ac- actually true, accurate. I mean, a lot of you know, a lot of people who weren't necessarily even Democrats, but they were they were supporters of Obama for a whole lot of reasons, mm. independence and just whole huge blocks of people who have, you know, turned against him for one reason or another. That's why we're seeing something so close here. Are there union people or young people or I, women? Or? I, think, I think it's working class whites in the non-Southern states. I mean, I think that we get these stories about how whites and particularly white males have not voted for a Democrat for years. But when you go and look down on a more granular level on a state or regional basis, what you're getting is overwhelming Republican support in the old Confederacy from white male voters. And in states like California, white males uh, uh, and white working class males uh, voting for uh, Obama and for Democratic candidates. I think that the non-recovery of this economy means that people who are bearing the brunt of it in their daily lives need to feel that Obama is listening to them in particular and has a plan. What can he do to, to make that appeal, though? What what, what concession I think, can he give? I think you're looking yeah, – you, you mentioned unions, and I think what you're seeing is a divide growing between pri- – and you saw it in Wisconsin – a divide growing between private sector unions and public sector unions. You, you have – Barack Obama stopping the Keystone Pipeline, and now the the Canadians are building it to Vancouver, and they're going to ship all the oil to uh, to China that they would have brought into the United States, and and the unions wanted that because they were going to get the jobs, and it wasn't even a government program that was going to pay for those jobs. It was a private company that was going to pay for those jobs, and I think that you're seeing that a lot of the the environmental policies, and I know we all like clean air and we like clean water, and and you know we like safe workplaces. But a lot of those onerous regulations are what's somewhat mm. driving manufacturing away. I, I always bring up the story. I'm in I'm in the paper industry. Um, that's what I got my degree in in Massachusetts. Newspaper? Kind of uh, paper? No, uh, printing. printing. Uh, not, well, I'm in the printing industry now, but in the, the making of paper. Okay, I have a paper good. engineering degree. That does exist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, but I mean, when I got out of school in 1996, there were a lot of paper mills in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. There's two or three left. And they've all gone down. And it's it's gone down more in Massachusetts than in other parts of the country, primarily through through electric rates and things like that, but also because some of the regulations. And, you know, those are the manufacturing jobs, bringing them back to the United States should be our number one priority. Because when we make things, we have a, a vibrant middle class that works, that pays their taxes, and that goes forwards. That this whole everybody needs a... Um, a college degree to work in the new economy, all that does is it shifts entry-level jobs to needing a college degree. Andrew Sum from, um, he's a professor at Northeastern, has done a lot of work on this. Um, you know, when the, the Patrick administration said there were 960,000 jobs that are available if people only had, you know, community college degrees, but we have the highest rate of community college yeah. graduation in the, in the country. There was the, he's the one that wrote that Mass Inc. report that came out at the beginning of the year that was absolutely fantastic. We need manufacturing back in this country. They're, well, they're trying to bring it back to Massachusetts. So one of the things that would probably help with that, if, if I can go back a couple of topics, um, would be if, if our banks that are sitting on a lot of cash were actually willing to lend it. And this goes to something that we were discussing during one of the breaks, and I wanted to ask Robert to, to come back to it because we're all sort of scratching our heads about, you know, what – 
these banks have all this cash. The governments have given them all this cash, both in the U.S. and in Europe. What can we do to get them to lend? And I just wanted to ask you what you thought about that. Oh, okay. Well, uh, look, I think there are several things that you can do. One is uh, to uh, to actually pass a law that taxes those uh, uh, retained funds, uh, which then causes the banks to have a choice between paying taxes on the funds that they're not lending out uh, uh, versus paying no tax on them because they are lending them out. There's a risk-reward calculation that needs to be set to get them all moving. My, my objection has been that we're trying to nurse these ba banks back into the economy one by one, and no one of them wants to be the first one out for fear that it's going to take the biggest hit if something goes wrong and the others mm -hmm. don't follow. So you actually have to set a rule that all banks have to listen to and follow in order to get them all moving at the same time. And the you know the equivalent of a retained earnings tax is a, is a very simple, very straightforward way to do it. And I actually think that just the debate over it in Congress would cause some of the banking industry to go, whoa, let's get out ahead of the regulation, guys. We need That's to get back point. into the mm -hmm. markets. We've got to do something to get All the right. bank's Richard lending. Parker, David Kravitz, Rob Eno, thanks for joining us today for Politics as Usual this Monday afternoon. Great having you here. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, up next, to lease or not to lease, that is a question. Are you in the market for a new car? Our personal finance guru gives us the skinny on what options are out there and what's best for you. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. <laughs> This program is on WGBH thanks to you and the Museum of Science, now showing To the Arctic, presented by Warner Brothers and IMAX. The Museum of Science is proud to support Radio Nova, weekday mornings here on 89.7 WGBH. And Innuendo. I had a phone call last Saturday, and the first question was, are you the company that underwrites WGBH? And she thanked me for underwriting. Jeff Kaplan, co-owner. When our clientele comes to us and thanks us and also tells us that that's the reason that they're calling us, that's what's important and that's what tells us it's the right place to be. To learn how WGBH can benefit your business, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, it's new lawyers feeling the squeeze. The Bay State is home to nine law schools, and they churn out hundreds of grads with six-figure debt, little experience, and few job prospects. The state's Bar Association says it's time for that to change. We'll talk about its recommendations today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Support WGBH right now and you'll automatically be entered to win a trip to England. Make an online gift and you and a guest could be going to visit High Clear Castle, referred to on Masterpiece simply as Downton Abbey. Prize includes round-trip airfare from Lufthansa, four-night stay at the Vineyard at Stockcross, and a private tour of High Clear Castle led by the Lady of the House, Fiona, Countess of Carnarvon. For a chance to win, visit WGBH.org. I'm WGBH reporter Ibi Caputo, unearthing historical innovations at an archaeological site, not in Rome or Cairo, but in Waltham, Massachusetts. This afternoon on WGBH's All Things Considered. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Remember the 90s when it seemed like everyone was driving a BMW or a Lexus or getting a new one every year, lease... Leasing cars has gone up and down in popularity over the years. At the same time, many of us were raised with the mantra, always pay cash for a car. But in this economy, is that realistic? Joining me to help decide whether to lease or buy is our resident personal finance expert, Cheryl Marshall. We're also going to be taking your phone calls today, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Let us know what you decided. How did you come to terms with this? Did you decide to lease because it's not as painful as, you know, laying out some big chunk of cash up front and then taking one of those, you know, financing deals that ever, never ended up being that good? Or did you decide to just write a 
check, you know, hold your nose and write the check. Let us know what you did. 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. I'm really curious about this, Cheryl. I mean, you and I have had, we know people over the years who have done nothing but lease cars. Right. And I always feel like a jerk because I've always bought my car. Of course, now I have an old car that I want to get rid of. But I mean, but I but I own it. It's like, yeah. you know, I, it's like I, my car. I, maybe it's the boomer generation. I'm with you, um, Emily. I always own my cars. I leased a car once. And I felt so ripped off, and I actually really? not felt I was ripped off. <laughs> okay, well. I, let's be clear that I said I'll never do because it again. Because why? Is it the well, limited mileage? That, why? It, this, so many different things. Okay, but I just want to tell you, I've done a three sixty. Okay, okay. Oh, really? and in certain circumstances, or a one eighty. Uh, uh, 360 or 180. Okay, well, I Opposite did it. Or the same. Well, I did a U turn. <laughs> How's that? Okay. I did a U turn. All right, okay. U turn. Yeah. So here, the, the I'm going to do the bottom line first. The bottom line is that if you want to have a snazzier car than you can afford, anyways, uh, that you don't put a lot of miles on your car. Yeah. Uh, you want a new car every three years, and you you don't want to deal with any of the hassles of you know buying a new car every few years, or you don't have the money to put down on a new car. Then you should lease a car. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you still have the same headaches with. Taking it into the shop. Well, no, like actually, gonna, you don't really? because that's that's one of the advantages. Because generally speaking, leases are written for three years, and guess what? How long is the warranty in new cars? Three years. So you're not dealing with that. And if any problems do come up, it's part of the manufacturer's responsibility and not the owner's. Mm. So there are advantages to leasing. And no matter what the circumstances, and this may blow you away, even at zero percent car loan rates. Leasing is always cheaper than buying the first three years, always. Um, that, I, th- I thought for sure this can't be right. But, you know, I went online and I found, you know, they gave you a, uh, an example for a car that cost, let's say, somewhere between twenty-three dollars to $25,000. And even imputing a 0% loan rate for the same car if you bought it, this is just for the first three years, though. Your monthly payments on a lease with an imputed interest rate of 6% would be $388. And for, if, with anything down or just straight out? With uh, a thousand dollar down payment and then um, a loan where you also put down the same thousand dollar down payment the first three years your payments would be six hundred and eleven dollars yeah okay why because that because that's how it is carly first of all car loans aren't written for 10 years okay and what happens with the lease when you lease a car all you're basically leasing the car for is the value of the depreciation of the car between years zero and three so you're not um but you're not leasing a car based on the whole twenty three thousand dollars value you're leasing it on the first three years of depreciation that's why the rates are so low but there are other bells and whistles that you really have to pay attention for, pay attention to, okay? For example, uh, you can only drive at a certain amount of miles. So if you, most leases are written for no more than, let's say, twelve to 15,000 miles. Yeah, 12 yeah. is kind of, it's not a lot. Pretty, it's not a lot. And you could get really slammed at the end uh, for between 12 to 15 cents a mile. What? For every extra mile that every you extra drive, mile? that's correct. Um, now, you may Whoa. be able to negotiate this up front, um, on the lease, you might be able to say, "Well, look, if I so drive, you like turn into a pumpkin." Yeah, okay. yeah. If I drive two thousand miles more than what I'm supposed to, um, can I negotiate it for ten cents? Okay. The second thing that you have to pay attention to is um, something called the money factor. Victor, just interrupt you there. Can sure. you turn it in early? Well, if, that's a good question. If you hit your twelve thousand and you haven't th- hit three years yet, can you turn no, it? No, you cannot. <gasps> okay, but what right. they do have, and I found out there's this new thing. Yes, America is a great country. It's called. Swap lease, where if you want to get out of your lease early, okay, they'll find you someone, and you can, you know, oh. get, you can lay off your lease on them. And I have those uh, links posted even up on, on that, our website. On those terrible terms. By the way, take, we want to hear your calls, your your complaints, your issues, your fears, okay. your successes. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. All things leasing or buying cars. What kind of you know, torturous decisions have you come through all this? I'm, well, I'm it, just a procrastinator. Okay. Well, that's, that's right. So, but if you don't swap your lease, you pay a big penalty if you turn your car in early. Okay, they may, it may cost. But you who a, would take your lease if the, the mileage was up? Um, well. That's a good question. Maybe somebody who doesn't mind paying a few extra, you know, for the lease. Okay, there's all kinds of, you know, 
terms. You have to go and take a look at these websites. But if you want to get out and you have your $15,000 or $12,000 miles, you're going to pay a big penalty, and it could be as much as six extra months of payments. So, you know, those are some of the down uh, the downsides of that, okay? Um, you also may have to pay hefty fees when you turn the car in. I remember what that's reason? what that, that that's just part of the lease. You know, it's it, I don't know what they call it, a return fee. Oh, the, here. All those things. It's okay, like those banks the, all, get all, you for yeah, yeah. a so, filing so, fee. What? Uh, okay, yeah. and then you know, so those are some of the things that you have to uh, watch out for. Also, people are under this, you know, mistaken notion that you get a tax break. You only get a tax break if it's, you know, connected to a business. Businesses can deduct deducted for their employees. A leased car. Yeah, a leased Not, car. No, I knew you can't no, do it. No, but for... you can deduct the portion of sales tax that you're paying on your lease. But other than that, it's Do you not... pay a sales tax on a lease? That's yes, a good you question. do. You, you do. do. You do. Every month. So do you end up paying all, the entire... No, 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 no. You're paying... Once again, you're paying the sales tax on the value of the lease. So it's not the full amount. No. So no. whoever picks so whoever picks up the car after that might be. We're taking your calls today, 877-301-8970. Cheryl Marshall is here. We're talking all things cars, car leasing, car buying, car sharing, owning one with your roommate or your friend. Huh. All right, we've got, uh, let's see, Lewis on the line from Boston. Go ahead, Lewis. Hey, how are you? Good. Uh, great. I heard you guys talking about, you know, the lease first buy option and, um, you know, having a lot of friends that tend to go after the lease to get the nice car, right. as you referred to. But, you know, balancing and understanding what you can afford financially, I think, is still part of the thing that hasn't caught up yet from 2008. So in order to go ahead and look at this potential to realize that there's a secondary car market, period, and gain a really good used car that you can afford and own, you know, I think that needs to be a consideration as well when you're talking about you know, buying a car. That's a good and, point. And, um, yeah, a lot of people, I see them go in and they'll buy a police car and then they'll get all the options on it. In reality, they end up, you know, after three years running more miles than they thought. Right. And, um, you know, not having a car. Right. That's a good one. They have to go right back there again. Right. That's one of the downsides. Right. Thanks, of, Lewis. That's one of the downsides of leasing. You know, again, I'm going to give you a bottom line before I do anything else. The single best financial thing you can do is to buy a used car. Yeah, that's because what Brian was just saying. Uh, that people, uh, there Lewis, is, I mean, that uh, people should look yeah. at the secondary market after there is these no leases. Question. Are, I just the bought, cars are essentially brand new. Right. I bought a new used car, two year old car with unbelievably low mileage, and got an incredible deal because most of the depreciation in a car takes place in the years, first three years. In the first three and you years. get a break on your excise yeah, tax? On everything, yeah. on everything. Uh, your insurance, everything. So the single best thing you can do out of everything is to buy a used car and pay cash. That's really, you know, the best thing. I'm a person who keeps their car a long time. My Me last too. car was 12 years old. Oh, mine's six. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I'm, you know, much older than you. <laughs> so, yeah, your, your last caller's point, you know, was well taken. Um, you have to, and also you have to look at what you can afford, and also you might have a bad credit rating. So if you go in to lease a car, I, I believe the uh, credit requirements are much stricter I'm for sure. car leases than they are for car loans. Yeah, because they don't want to get into that whole repo Right, thing, and right? remember, uh, if you have a home equity line, many times people will use their home home equity line to buy a car because the rates are much lower, too. So it, it's not like, okay, yes, leasing's better or, you know, buying's better. It is a person-by-person -person case based on how much you can afford. Mm -hmm. And as I said, if you want that snazzy car for three okay. years. All right. Talking to Cheryl Marshall, all things car-related, owning, buying, sharing, leasing. We've got Kathy online. We're taking your phone calls, I should say, 877-301-8970, 877 877-301. 301-8970. And Kathy from South Dartmouth is on the line. Hi, Emily. Hi. Um, I buy a new car every three years. I'm jealous. Uh, granted, it's not a high-end car. <laughs> it's, a <Honda. laughs> it's a Honda Accord, but it's high-end to me. That's a good car. And it's a wonderful car, and I, I, I think I do well because... Um, I always, well, my mileage is between thirty and 35000 So you I buy it, though. Every three years you buy one. I buy one. it, yes. And I generally get a, what I think is a good deal. I end up paying my, my car and $6,000, and I get a new one. So my thought is I'm paying $2,000 a year to drive a new car. Now, are you trying so much? I, I, 
Are you driving 35,000 miles a year, or is that no, in every... total after three years? Total. Okay. Total after three years. So 10,000 a year. Well, that, that does sound like a good deal. I would be curious about one thing. Um, generally speaking, when you buy a lease, they, you, you have a residual value. Which she is buys the, the car. Not the no, lease. no, no. Listen to me for a second. Oh, when sorry. they put the residual value on, and it would be interesting to see what the residual value of a Honda Accord would be after three years, because it may end up being cheaper, although I doubt it, to lease the car for three years and then buy it from that car lease. And company for less than the six thousand dollars. I'd be very curious. But she um, wants to a new one, it. so she doesn't want to buy it. Um, How long have you been doing this, Kathy? I've been doing this since two thousand. You don't get bored of the Honda Accord. My problem is I always want to no. switch brands. No, it's my little black dress. I always buy a uh, silver Honda. <laughs> I have no loyalty. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Who give me a good deal? And, and I've never so much as put a tire, a battery. Uh. I changed the oil faithfully, and. Um, I just feel like for $2,000 a year, I'm driving a good no, car. No, 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 you're right. That, you're right. The reason I asked the question about the residual value, though, is what if they, what if hypothetically the residual value was, uh, you know, uh, lower and you could, or, or higher, you know, and you might be able to get the car for a cheaper price and trade it in, you know, someplace else for the same Honda Accord um, and get more money. I just well, think it's interesting. Yeah, to be honest, I've never considered. No, no, that. no. I, I, I haven't either. But you know, it, I'm just curious mm. about how they do that. I mean, one of the things. Okay, that thanks, Kathy. Sure. Taking your phone calls today: eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. All things car leasing, car buying, car sharing, car swapping, <laughs> car anything. We're talking here in the studio with Cheryl Marshall. By the way, can you can you can you co-own? I guess you can with a roommate or a friend or something. Or is that dumb? I don't know about co-owning. I mean, I co-own a car with my husband, yeah. I guess, so maybe you could. Although I did look one time into co-owning a car with my daughter, and uh, for some reason, you know, I, I don't know whether we couldn't do it because she was a minor. I'm not 100% certain about that. Certainly, you can have more than one person um, insured on a car, so it yeah, seems absolutely. to me that you might be able to make your own private arrangement. I don't know if that works in terms of, you know, how you register it or anything else. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting question. But in terms of co-owning, if you're going to do that, you might as well join Zipcar. What about those car sharing I, programs? I think they're fantastic. Yeah, re- Zipcar's I been re- going down in stock or whatever. Well, Zipcar's going down in stock because all the majors are entering the field and are going to, you know, offer some serious competition. Like Hertz um, and all those. Yes, they're all going into the car sharing business. I mean, basically, what they did was wait to, you know, they let Zipcar do all the test marketing for them, and now they're coming in. And if you think about the facilities and the advertising and marketing background that they have, it's going to be tough for Zipcar, which is unfortunate because it's a fantastic company. Uh, You know, once again, uh, your daughter's in New York, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So my daughter uses Zipcar all the time, and she's very numbers conscious and did a calculation and said it's still cheaper than owning a car in New York City. Oh, sure, in New York City. You know, I hadn't rented a car in years, and I had had a car breakdown over the weekend. I was actually stunned at the technology, and I drive into the return place, and the guy opens the door and says, Welcome to Boston, Emily. It's like they had the whole thing and the computer, and then it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> pretty, you pr- know, pretty snazzy. Yeah, he had but, just read the, I don't know, I guess the license on the Yeah, thing, and, and it, like, it's now spreading to Europe, too. I mean, they're, they're very, very good deals for people, and mm-hmm. they take all the risk, you know, the insurance risk, everything else for a fee, and, you know, whatever and whatever you end up having to drive the car for, for the how long over the weekend. And they've also, they're always upgrading their fleet. The zip car. That's it. It's really, yeah. I see them around. I don't see them as much as I did in Boston. All right, we're taking your phone calls today, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. I'm talking to our financial expert, Cheryl Marshall, who's fielding questions about car leasing, car buying, car sharing, car zipping. <laughs> We've got Donna from Rhode Island on the line. Welcome, Donna. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm calling because I wanted to give my uh, side of leasing. I had bought a new car back in 1985 and kept it until 1997. Did I say 1985? Yes, yes. 1985 I bought it. So and 12 then years. When, at the end of that car, life, everything that goes on a car when it's yes. that age, yep. <laughs> the, you know, the water pump. Yeah, yeah. Right. Brake linings. Right, brake lines. You know, the transmission. This was like The a, alternator. Look how smart we sound. <laughs> seem to go one after the other, yeah. after the other, after the other. And the first time, you're okay with it. The second time, you're like, oh. The third time, you realize, I could have put a down payment 
on another car, but now you feel invested in the this old car that you're right. trying to keep alive. And finally, when the engine blew after <laughs> putting after putting two thousand dollars into the car to take care of those other things, I said, you know something, I am so done with this. I am just going to lease a car from now on. Okay, so what happened? Yeah, I, I lease a car, and I lease it for... The first lease I got was very generous, actually. It was for four years because I had odd credit at the time. So, But the dealer worked with me, and I'm now on three-year leases. And I'm, you know, the only thing I will agree with is the mileage problem. Yeah. The first time I've run into that problem myself, we have two cars in our household, but the other car, which is owned went through a major breakdown, and since I work from home, my partner used my car and put at least right. miles on it. So now we're looking to how we're going to handle this at the end of the year. Yeah. All right. Well, you're the per- you're you're the perfect case for that. Hey, Emily, I have a fantastic idea. You know, the Tapper the Tapper brothers are going off the air. This is our chance. We yeah, can take the car over guys. Yeah, the yeah, car yeah. guys. We can now have the car girls. Yeah, okay. the, the, the dumb car yeah, girls. Yeah, we can yeah. take over for click and clack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I I still am never know what I'm looking at under the. I mean, I I know more than I I know just enough to be really really. Really stupid. That's a, no, that's no, no. You're not like stupid because a lot of the stuff. Belts, lo- that. I mean, I know, I know what it sounds like when you've got a broken this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, ca- you have to basically you have to find a mechanic you trust. No, but I've got all if that, you do, yeah. you know, go and lease a car. It's a couple of things. Oh, you're... a caller wants to hear about the story of my tiger breaking down. I was bragging about taking my father's tiger. Up to the What's country. a tiger? It's a 1966 Sunbeam Tiger oh, with a yes. British car oh, with yeah, a V8 yeah, yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but um, the, I don't think it totally broke down. I think a, a hose is loose, but the uh, it started that, leaking uh, antifreeze. But in terms of going for lease, there's a couple of things that people really have to pay attention to. Um, they call the interest rate, imputed interest rate the money factor. I hate when they change names. Why don't they just say imputed interest rate? What does imputed mean? Well, that's the interest rate. <laughs> when you lease a car, you're basically being charged interest. Yeah. So you need to know what that rate is because that affects the amount that you're paying for a lease. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which we talked about a little bit before with one of the callers, is the residual value. An inflated residual value lowers your monthly payments, but it can can also tie you up, okay? A more realistic residual value will make it easier to sell the lease, trade your vehicle mid-lease, or buy a vehicle at the end of a lease. And the other thing you have to worry about is the capitalized cost, which is the same thing as uh, MSRP when you're buying a new car. MSRP. You know, manufacturer's su- suggested retail oh. price, the sticker, yeah, the sticker, sticker price, price on a car. So you have to worry about that uh, when you're leasing a car and make sure that that's as low as it would be if you were buying the same mm-hmm. car. And also, one thing that hasn't changed is these these salesmen. They just they just pressure you and pressure. You. I yep. always feel so awkward and I like know, out of I my know. element and just not comfortable. And then I walk out and don't have a new car. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went, when I was looking at cars, and my favorite thing, the new line in the industry is after five minutes is. Are you ready to make a deal tonight? Oh, I know. I, like, I'm like, are you I'll kidding put you me? In that. I can put you in this. I can, I can put, put you. Shut I can up. put you in the car in, right. fi- in, in yeah. five minutes. I can okay? put you in that. I can see you in that. All right, Cheryl Marshall. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. All things car leasing, buying, and you know, borrowing. All right, thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow at noon with a conversation about the well-covered challenges and surprising opportunities out there for first-time home buyers. I'm sure, Cheryl knows about that too. Stay with us now for the Kelly Crossy Show. Coming up next, she takes on the zombie apocalypse. Love that. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, we continue with our one-on-one special series with Rob Shanahan. He's a personal photographer to rock stars, including Ringo Starr. That's tonight at 7. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio.